0: Well, last week we launched our Advent series on miracles, which we're calling Live the Impossible. We began with the virgin birth and concluded if a virgin birth is possible, all bets are off. Anything can happen. If God can break into the life of a young woman and do something remarkable, then He can break into any of our lives and do something remarkable anytime, even in our day and age. Now the series, the theme of miracles, seems to have struck a resonant chord and there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. Before I even made it to the lobby last Sunday someone had grabbed me on the way to share with me their miracle story. And it was the first of many miracle stories that folks have shared with me uh, throughout the week in conversation and by email. Uh, One mother told a story of praying over a sick child one night and finding her child suddenly and completely healed of a chronic medical condition. Another told a story of some years ago receiving a a grim cancer diagnosis, feeling very alone and afraid. And she woke up one morning to find in her front yard a deflated helium balloon with a message attached. The balloon had been launched hundreds of miles away in another state and landed in her front yard. And the message on the card read simply, The Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. Well, she heard it as a message from God, took courage and hope, and 20 years later she is still in remission from that cancer. Stories like that of of financial needs being met at the very last minute of being in just the right place at just the right time to minister to just the right person. Stories of angelic visitors who showed up to rescue or help and then suddenly disappeared. And for each and all of these people, these miracle stories, not only were about their need being met in a moment, but about a sign that God was present and active and powerful in their lives. So we hear stories like that, and and they strengthen our faith, and they fill us with hope as well. But then we turn on the news, and we hear news of yet another shooting in our country. How many have we heard in recent months? We watch as ISIS gains strongholds across the Middle East and in other parts of the world as well. We see Syrian refugees streaming across the planet looking for some place to call home. We feel simmering racial tension in some of our cities and across our campuses. And when we stop and think about it, we're, we're, we're reminded of the seemingly intractable problems our world faces systemic poverty, orphaned children, human trafficking, melting ice caps, religious persecution. And We wonder what kind of miracle would it take to address and overcome any of these challenges? I mean, talk about impossible. Do we dare to believe, can we really expect that God is going to break into history and do something about any of these problems? Uh, A New York Daily News headline from this past week surfaced the skepticism and cynicism that some people are feeling these days. God isn't fixing this, it seems. And now here it is Christmas time, a season that promises peace on earth and goodwill among people. Will there ever be peace on earth? Do we dare to believe that good will ever win the day? These are the questions we want to go after today as we continue to explore the miracle side of Christmas. So we're going to go once again to the Gospel of Luke, to the first chapter, and catch a little bit of the run-up to the Christmas story. So here in these, this early chapter, the two early chapters of Luke, we, we, we find a, a veritable rash of miracles. First, an angel appears to an old priest named Zechariah, nearly scaring him to death, and then announces that he and his equally aged wife are going to have a child in their old age. When the old man has a hard time believing that, he is struck speechless for the next nine months or so until the child is born. Not long after that, the same angel appears to a young woman named Mary and announces to her that she is going to have a child as well, even though she's never had relations with a man. Well, a few weeks later, when Mary pays a visit to her relative Elizabeth, the child within Elizabeth's womb actually leaps. And so in the course of two chapters, we have two angelic visitors, two miraculous conceptions, a man struck mute, and a child in the womb jumping for joy sounds kind of wondrous, kind of inexplicable. And that's how we defined miracles last week. Uh, A wondrous event that seems inexplicable by the laws of nature and thus must be an act of God. These all seem to fit the bill. But as remarkable as each of these and all of these occurrences are, Mary seems an even greater miracle unfolding here. It's so wondrous, so inexplicable, she bursts into song about it. It's called the Magnificat. And we find it in Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 45. So listen to Mary's song. My soul praises the Lord. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Now it's called the Magnificat because magnify is the first word of this song in the original language. And it really is a song of joy. But I want you to notice what Mary is singing about here. She's not just singing about the blessings that are coming to her individually, but the blessings that are coming to her people and even to the world. She sings about the proud, the the haughty, the powerful being scattered and the poor and the lowly being lifted up. She sings about the hungry being well fed and about fat cats being sent away empty. Now it helps to remember that Mary and most of her fellow Jews are peasant people. They are living, as we would say, from paycheck to paycheck, sometimes borrowing, bartering, or begging to make ends meet and sustain their existence. Keep in mind as well that Mary and her people are oppressed people, and they have been for 500 years. Their nation, their dignity has been trampled on, first by the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. They are living in occupied territory. There are soldiers in the streets watching their every move. They are taxed beyond their ability to pay. They have virtually no control over their future personally or as a nation. But now, with the coming of this child, God is breaking into Israel's story. He's going to be faithful to His promises. He's going to make them a great nation once again, a blessing to the world and not a laughingstock. What Mary's describing here is nothing less than a revolution, a social, political, economic, cultural revolution, a total renewal, an overturning of the existing social order which was based on class and wealth and power, and the establishment of a new frame of reference that would guarantee and promise peace and prosperity, equality and justice for all people. She sees these good things flowing first to Israel and then to the whole world. What Mary sees is the miracle of salvation. But salvation in the fullest sense of that word making things right with God, making things right with the human race, making things right with the very earth that God has given to to us. And it turns out this is just one of four songs of joy we find in the opening chapters. Zechariah sings a song, the angelic choir sings a song, and then old man Simeon comes along, and he's got a song. And each one sings about salvation in the fullest sense of that word for the whole person and the whole human race and the whole world. Think about, uh, about Bob Dylan and Bono at their visionary best, describing the world and people the way it was meant to be. Now, Christian people in the church, in understanding and interpreting these kinds of passages, have tended to drift towards one of two extremes some Christians, some branches of the church, particularly in the Western world, uh, in, in prosperous and developing nations, we read and interpret passages like this very individually, very spiritually. We understand salvation very privately, inviting Jesus into my life, having my sins forgiven, going to heaven when I die. When we hear the word gospel, We think about forgiveness and eternal life and new birth. And so we tend to spiritualize passages like this and we tend to miss the social and political dimensions of salvation. Other branches of the church, particularly in developing nations and among oppressed people, they tend to politicize passages like this. Because they're living in situations of hardship and suffering, they focus on the social, the earthly, the political dimensions of the gospel. They think about the empowerment of the poor, about the the raising up of the lowly, about justice for those who are oppressed. Back in the 1960s, the 1970s, liberation theology emerged from out of Latin America primarily as Catholic priests and Protestant clergy called upon the church to pursue social and cultural, economic, political revolution and transformation, using political might and even some calling for physical force to try to bring about a new social order. Well, either of these extremes truncate the gospel. They cut it off. On the one hand, the, the spiritualizing misses the social political demands of the gospel. And the other politicizing of the gospel misses out on, on the spiritual transformation that needs to happen. According to Mary, the gospel is about both. It is good news for the person and it's good news for society. Salvation is both personal and collective. The kingdom of God exists, not just for Israel and the church, but for the whole human race. Now we need to hear this, and by we I mean those of us who are Americans who who are among the wealthiest people on the planet. By we, I mean those of us who are white, who have enjoyed privileges and opportunities that are not only been available to people of color. By we, I mean evangelicals who for too long have majored on the spiritual, personal dimensions of the gospel and neglected the social and community dimensions of the gospel. And we need to hear this because this is the gospel. This is the gospel, not only as Mary recognized it, but as Zechariah and the angels and old man Simeon recognized it. It's the gospel as Jesus articulated it. It is not just about having our sins forgiven and going to heaven when we die. That is wonderful news. But it is also about each of us and all of us and the whole human race becoming what God intended it to be from the very beginning. It's the transformation of all things is the gospel. And the world needs to hear that more than ever. I mean the problems we're facing in the world today, they just feel overwhelming and none of our efforts seem to be enough. Government programs, educational initiatives, charitable organizations, educational initiatives, none of them seem to have been able to to overcome the forces that threaten the peace and prosperity of our planet. We need a gospel that speaks to this need that speaks to all of life and all of the people. That not only transforms human hearts, but transforms human society. We need a gospel that puts all things right. It's not only what the world needs. It's what people outside the church are looking for today. Seekers and skeptics. They tell us it's what millennials are looking for today, whether they are inside the church or outside. They're looking for a gospel that makes a difference in the real world right now. They're looking for a church that's committed to justice and compassion and reconciliation and doing good. They're tired of gospel talk. They want to see gospel action. Brenda Salter McNeil is a professor at uh, Seattle Pacific University. She's a prophetic preacher and author. I had a chance to hear her speak a couple of months ago at a Movement Day conference in New York City, which I have told you about before. Uh, McNeil had an opportunity recently to work with some of the leaders of the new Black Lives Matter movement emerging in the wake of uh, Ferguson and Charleston. And what she discovered to her surprise is that the new generation of civil rights leaders are not grounded in the church. They are not operating from a biblical vision and values as the civil rights movement has been that most of us are familiar with. No, this new generation of leaders, they have basically given up on the church, writing the church off as irrelevant or ineffective or both. So McNeil sees this as a pivotal moment for the church, a wake-up call. Listen to what she said that day. They want to see a new expression of church. They want something that is authentically present and generous, inside and out. And they want a church that shows we are socially active. We can no longer preach Jesus without justice. It is non-negotiable. We have got to do more than we say. It was a powerful message and a powerful moment. There were a couple thousand people in this auditorium in midtown Manhattan, and she had us all going the way only an African-American preacher can get you all going. And pretty soon, I'm amening and preaching, sister, along with everybody around me. <laughs> but then suddenly, suddenly I'm not amening anymore. Suddenly I'm weeping because I realize that, that God is speaking to me, speaking to us. Pastor Robert was there with me and Pastor Dana as well. God was speaking to me and to us and to Grace Chapel. We can no longer preach Jesus without justice. We cannot just talk the gospel without doing the gospel. And for those who may be thinking right now, don't all lives matter? The answer is yes. In a just society, all lives matter. In unjust societies, some lives seem to matter more than others. And when that happens, someone needs to speak up and say what needs to be said. That black lives matter, and brown lives matter, and women's lives matter, and children's lives matter, and gay and lesbian and transgender lives matter, and Syrian lives matter, and the lives of the unborn matter and the infirm, and the aging, those with disabilities. All these lives matter. And so sometimes, yes, someone needs to speak up and say what needs to be said, and that someone is the church. It is followers of Jesus Christ. So rediscovering Jesus, which is what we're all about this year, rediscovering Jesus is about rediscovering his heart for the poor, his voice for the voiceless, his dramatic action on behalf of those who are forgotten and downtrodden and oppressed. This is the work Jesus came to do, and Mary recognized it, and so did Zechariah and the angels and old man Simeon. They knew it would take a miracle to put the world right. But they recognized that Christ was the first of those miracles. That God had begun to do what He said He would do. And that more miracles would follow. And they did. And every miracle that followed after that, that Jesus performed, every healing of a disease, every, every provision for a daily need, every deliverance from the powers of evil, every victory over death, every command over the forces of nature, every one of those miracles was a sign. A sign that God can and will put the world right and in fact had already begun to do that in and through His Son Jesus and His followers. I want to come back to something we said last week that seemed to be helpful and clarifying. We said last week that miracles are primarily signs and not solutions. The primary purpose of a miracle isn't to solve a problem, ours or the world's, it's a sign to reveal something about God and His work. And that helps a lot. You see, if miracles were God's answer to the problem of sickness, then Jesus would have healed everybody in Capernaum. But He didn't. For that matter, He would have healed everybody in Judea, and everybody in Samaria, and everybody to the uttermost parts of the earth. If one-off miracles was God's answer to the problem of sickness, that's what he would have done, but he didn't. If miracles were the answer to the problem of hunger in the world, Jesus would have fed everybody. He would have provided jobs for everybody who was out of work. He would have set free everyone who had been jailed, imprisoned unjustly. If miracles like that were to be the solution to the world's problems, then Jesus failed miserably. But that was not the purpose of miracles. Miracles were meant to be a sign of who God is, his presence, his activity, and what he's doing in the world. That he can and will accomplish his purposes, sometimes in wondrous and inexplicable ways, but most of the time in ordinary and everyday ways through people like Mary and Zechariah and old man Simeon and you and me. You see, the solution to the world's problems is is the people of God doing the work of God with the help of God. God has given us everything we need to address the world's problems. He has given us minds and bodies to work with. He's filled the earth with resources. He has given us each other, the human community with whom we can partner. And then he has offered us himself, his power, his presence, his spirit to be about the work in the world. As we learned a couple of weeks ago, Christ didn't come to fix the world for us. He came to fix the world with us. So let me try to help you maybe picture a little bit of how this works. One of the things that Mary envisioned in her song was the hungry being fed. Part of the miracle of Christ's coming. Well one day Jesus and his disciples were Confronted with a problem, an overwhelming need, a great crowd of hungry people, thousands of hungry, restless people. And the need was so overwhelming, the disciples were just paralyzed, and they just wanted it to go away. Send them away, they said to Jesus. Well, notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't flex his miracle muscles and say, out of the way, boys, I'll handle this one. It's not what he did at all. Tell you what, he said, why don't you feed them? Oh, that's impossible, Jesus. We don't have those kinds of resources, which of course they didn't. I tell you what, Jesus says, why don't you you go find out what you have and bring it to me? So they go out and they find they do have a few things to work with, not much, five loaves, a couple of fish, they bring it to Jesus. He says, I tell you what why don't you guys go out and organize the people into groups of 50 and, and I'll see what I can do with this food. So they go do their thing, they come back, next thing they know Jesus is handing them baskets and he says why don't you start handing out this food and let's just see what happens. And lo and behold they hand out the food, there's enough for everybody in fact more than enough. So as they come back to Jesus he says to them tell you what, why don't you each take a basket and fill it with leftovers and carried around with you for a few days to remind you to think twice before you say something is impossible for God. And you know the word that John uses to describe that miracle? A sign. After the people saw the miraculous sign Jesus did. That miracle was not meant to solve the problem of world hunger. It was meant to be a sign of how he would solve the problem of world hunger by empowering his people to do what they could do and then multiplying their efforts in miraculous ways. The solution to the world's problems is the people of God doing the work of God with the help of God. That miracle was Jesus' way of saying, look what we can do together. I'll tell you what, he's saying, you... You bring what you have. You bring yourselves. You bring your resources, whatever they are. You bring your faith, however much you have. You you just show up, and I'll bring what I have. I'll bring my spirit and my power and my authority, and let's see what we can do together. Let's address the world's problems. One person, one problem, one miracle, one day at a time. And you know, ever since Jesus came and started it, that's the work that he and we have been doing together. And while it may not seem like it, there have been miraculous results in addressing the world's problems. I know it doesn't feel that way, but just listen for a moment. In 1990, 36% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, less than $1.25 a day. As of 2015, that number had been reduced to 12%, from 36% to 12%, a two-thirds reduction. Millions of people have been lifted out of extreme poverty over the past 25 years. Since 1990, the number of undernourished people in the world has been reduced by half, from 25% downwards towards 10% of the world's population. Infant mortality has been reduced by over half in that time period. Death from preventable diseases like malaria and tuberculosis has been cut by more than half. 37 million lives have been saved just because we have overcome the problem of tuberculosis around the world. Since 1990, 2.6 billion people have gained improved access to clean water. 3.2 billion people have gotten access to the internet, opening up the opportunity for education and enterprise. Since 1990, the number of women involved in parliaments around the world has more than doubled. And as hard as it is to believe, there is more peace on earth today than at any other time in human history. The number of deaths by war has been steadily declining and is as low today as it has ever been, in spite of how unsettled things seem to be around the world. So these are remarkable gains You could say they're wondrous, you could say they're miraculous, you could say they're inexplicable, and they are. Now, to be sure, it's not just Christian people and agencies who are doing this work, but that doesn't mean that God isn't behind it and that God isn't working miracles. Maybe you heard last week that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the the founder of Facebook, he and his wife just had a child recently, and uh, they were so filled with joy and gratitude they made a decision that they would donate 99% of their Facebook stock to charity over the course of their lifetime. Someone estimated that to be about $42 billion they are going to give away. Now, as far as I know, Mark Zuckerberg is not a follower of Christ. But that doesn't mean God can't prompt he and his wife to do something like that, and it doesn't mean God, is, God won't use the money. Those five loaves and the two fish, they weren't Christian loaves and fish. They were just loaves and fish, and it's just $42 billion. God doesn't have a money problem. And while Christians aren't the only ones doing good in the world, certainly, Anyone who is on the ground in any of these needy places around the world will tell you that Christian people, Christian churches, faith-based agencies are leading the way in terms of sacrifice and commitment and effectiveness. World Vision, World Relief, International Justice Mission, three agencies we partner with on a regular basis. They are among the most effective and efficient relief and development agencies in the world today, setting the pace for many, many others. We recently took an offering to help World Vision with some of their Syrian refugee relief work. World Vision alone estimates they have personally touched the lives of two million Syrian refugees in the past handful of years through simple gifts that you and I give like that. Two million lives. It's remarkable. But, of course, it's not just the humanitarian work, the relief and the development, the economics and the health as important that is. It is also the communication of the remarkable gospel of Jesus Christ, that every life matters, that Christ has come to live and die and, and rise again for us, that people can be saved and forgiven and healed and restored and changed and empowered to find their purpose in the world. Matthew Parris is a British columnist and an avowed atheist. Not too long ago, he wrote a column, and this was the title, As an atheist, I truly believe that Africa needs God. (laughs) You gotta let that set in for a minute, okay? (laughs) Listen to a few lines from that column. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. It's not just good. It is miraculous. It is wondrous and inexplicable, and it is a work of God through His people in the world today. So let's put it this way. Living the impossible means believing that God can and will put the world right and then joining Him in that work believing that God can and will put the world right and then joining Him in that work. The miracle of Christmas is that God has broken into human history, that He is beginning to bring about the transformation of all things, and He is inviting you and me to join Him in that remarkable work. God is fixing this, but He's fixing it through us, through His people, those who give of their time, energy, talents, and resources to see His work go forward. Now, in case you haven't realized, something is stirring inside of me about this in recent days. But the truth is it's not just stirring in me, it's stirring, I think, in our entire congregation, in our leadership and the broader community here. It's stirring in churches and leaders all across the city of Boston. It's stirring in churches and leaders across the country and, I believe, across the world. It's the recognition that we can no longer preach Jesus without justice that we can't just preach the gospel, we have to do the gospel. And so understand that we here at Grace are gonna continue and even more intensely to lean into this dimension of our ministry, continuing to lean into our partnerships across the city with agencies that provide halfway houses for people coming out of jail and crisis care for women in crisis pregnancies and rescue missions for people who are in trouble and micro-enterprise kinds of efforts. We're gonna continue to lean into all those things. We're going to continue to build relationships with churches and leaders of other race, denomination, cultures all across the city so that we and they are enriched by our relationships so that we experience the kind of reconciliation that we want the world to see. We're going to continue to give away significant amounts of our money each year to be about the work of God beyond the walls of Grace Chapel. We'll continue to do those things with greater intensity but I'm also happy to make another announcement here this morning. When I was down at Movement Day, one of the speakers challenged those of us who were church leaders, asking if we were willing to redeploy some of our best resources, our best dollars, our best people, to the pursuit of social justice and community transformation. Were we really serious about these things? And I heard the Lord speaking to me and Grace Chapel about that. So after coming back and processing it a bit with some of our leaders, elders, and staff, I'm happy to announce today that we are asking Pastor Dana Baker to take on a newly defined ministry here at Grace that we're calling Pastor of Social Justice and Multicultural Ministry. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. Now, most of you know, Pastor Dana has brought wonderful leadership to our East Lexington campus for this first year or so as they've gotten launched. And they're doing great. There's vibrancy and health and great promise there. At the same time, we recognize that Pastor Dana for 20 years has been building relationships across the city, investing in urban ministry initiatives, leading our congregation in multicultural and racial reconciliation. She has a heart for this work, a skill for this work, a a calling to this work. And so we have asked her to lead this effort, and uh, she has agreed. So I am grateful uh, to, to Dana for taking on that responsibility, grateful to the East Lexington campus for releasing her. Now, she and Richard will continue to provide some leadership for East Lexington, but we'll be looking for a new campus pastor for that congregation going forward. Well, there's obviously a lot more that could be said and done about all these things, and there will be more that we say and do. And yes, it will take a miracle, It will take many miracles to begin to address the problems facing our city and our country and our world. But on this second Sunday of Advent, we join Mary and the others in a song of joy, recognizing the first miracle that Christ has come into the world, the first of many miracles and the promise that God can and will and is putting the world right. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you have, in fact, come into our world with all of its chaos and confusion, its sadness and hardship and danger. You have come to be with us in it, to be for us in it, but also to accomplish your great work here in the world with and through us. We're grateful for the fact that as a congregation, we have had many opportunities to be about your work in the world for many, many decades now. Good work has been done, but we we ask that you would use us in even more passionate, committed, effective ways in the days to come. So honor our desire and our efforts, we pray. Unify your church across the city and across the country and across the world. And we pray the church might be leading the way towards putting things right. We're grateful, Lord, we can now gather together as a community of faith around the table, reminding us of your coming to earth and the promise that you will come again to finish what you have begun. So meet us here in these moments as we gather around the table, in Jesus' name, amen.